You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to 14th Century Europe. It sucks here! Not that medieval Europe was ever a barrel of laughs, but practically the moment the ball dropped on 1301, things began noticeably worsening. It began with the summers. They sort of stopped, or at least abruptly shortened and got colder. And there isn't much consensus on why. Maybe fluctuations of Earth's orbit, maybe a decrease in solar activity, maybe a flurry of volcanic activity, or maybe a major flux in Atlantic Ocean currents. There's also disagreement over whether this marked the beginning of what we call the Little Ice Age, or whether that came later. What is known is that it sucked. The cold weather and the flooding that came with it regularly drove famines across the continent. In 1304, in 1305, and 1310. Then came the spring of 1315, when rain fell over nearly the entire continent for month upon month. Grain crops failed, and the price of bread skyrocketed. In August, bread was so rare in St. Albans that when King Edward II passed through, even he went hungry. What's worse is that at the same time, the cattle began to die off due to some sort of pestilence that's never been identified. It's a pretty good bet that, whatever the underlying disease, it was exacerbated by the lack of food. Without cattle, there was no milk or cheese, the main sources of protein for most of the peasant class. This state of affairs persisted for at least two years. Food was so scarce that people were driven to desperate measures. They foraged wild edibles, ground next season's seed into flour, killed and ate their mules, horses, even dogs. There are legends from this period of children being abandoned in forests for lack of food, perhaps the inspiration for Hansel and Gretel, and even more rumors about cannibalism, though who knows how much truth there is to either. What is pretty clear is that in the places worst hit by the Great Famine of 1315, Northern France, Flanders, England, Germany, Poland, between 10 to 15% of the population died from hunger. Since roughly the time William the Conqueror had invaded England back in 1066, Europe had been growing at an unprecedented rate. That all came to an end with the famine. And things were just going to head downhill from there. In 1345, Jeanne Khan and his Golden Horde lay siege to the city of Katha, now Theodosia, on the Black Sea in Crimea. At first, the Genoese inside of Katha looked to be in deep trouble. The Mongols effectively cut off all supply routes into and out of the city, and the people inside the walls began to suffer intolerably. But things on the other side of the walls weren't looking so great either. The Khan's army began falling sick and dying at an incredible rate of speed. The disease was so virulent that by 1347, the Golden Horde had to give up, 
turn around and retreat. But before John Abek left, he gave the Genoese a present. He had the festering bodies of his dead loaded onto catapults and chucked over the walls of Kaffa. People quickly dumped the corpses into the sea, but it was too late. The city fell ill with the same disease that had driven the Khan away. Hoping to escape the horror, four ships left port in Kaffa for the safety of Venice. When they arrived, they brought the sickness with them. The disease, which had killed 13 million people in China a decade before, was now free to stalk the European continent. The Black Death had begun. It's possible that the cold and damp weather that had killed so many in the first half of the century also facilitated the spread of the plague. Swamped fields may have encouraged flea-ridden rats to immigrate to cities and houses, starting the epidemic off and aiding its spread. It's also possible that the people encountering the plague were more susceptible than they ought to have been, owing to the residual weakness the famine left and the continued shortage of protein from the cattle blight. It is extraordinarily clear that the bubonic plague that marched across Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe was, for some reason, far more contagious and more deadly than any version seen since. In less than 10 years, it spread across the entirety of Europe and beyond and killed somewhere between 75 million and 200 million, between 30 and 60% of the continent's entire population. If you would believe it, there was also great political and religious strife. The Catholic Church was staring down problems from every conceivable side. As the ultimate to only spiritual authority on the continent, the famine and plague read like a direct threat to the authority of God. Priests and bishops from Portugal to Poland had been praying for mercy, and mercy refused to show up. Somebody was doing something wrong. Maybe God was the wrong guy to turn to. Maybe the cure lived in the old pagan traditions, in magic and spirits. The Catholic Church didn't like that one bit, but the alternative hypothesis was that God wasn't listening because the Church had lost his favor. As it happened, there was a lot of reason to think that could be. Back in 1296, Pope Boniface VIII had gotten into a little tiff with King Philip IV of France. Philip, looking for money to wage war with England, as usual, had decided to impose taxes on the churches in his territory. This was a big no-no, and Boniface responded by excommunicating Philip. Philip then arrested Boniface's legate, tried him for inciting an insurrection, and imprisoned him. Boniface issued a bull, giving him ultimate authority over all monarchs and gave power to unexcommunicate Philip to an archbishop if he promised to get his act together. Philip did not. He publicly burnt the papal bull in Paris. So, Boniface excommunicated him again. Double secret excommunication. Then, Philip raised an army, marched on Boniface's hometown, beat him bloody, and captured the pope. He died shortly after, probably as a result of his wounds. The College of Cardinals got the message. They quickly elected a new pope, Benedict XI, who would make nice-nice with France. But when he died a year later, Philip pressured the enclave into electing an even more French pope, Clement V, 
Clement was so French that he abandoned Rome and moved the seat of the church to Avignon, where it essentially became a supplicant to the French throne. You know who didn't like that? Rome. Eventually, they got a Roman pope back, but France kept electing their own popes, leading to a couple of decades where there were two dueling popes, and then a third one on top of them based in Pisa. Not to mention a handful of heretics and reformers who tried to start their own churches. The Catholic Church had never been weaker, and the only one who might have been happy with that weakening was France. But France had its own problems to deal with. The English royal family had been French ever since William the Conqueror, and they held significant portions of French land, which France gradually chipped away at by seizing portions of it every time England and Scotland made war, which they did a lot. By 1337, only the province of Gascony in the southwest of France was controlled by England, and King Philip VI of France thought that it was time to take control of that, too. Edward III, King of England, disagreed. He claimed that he shouldn't just be allowed to keep Gascony, but to take all of France. He invaded in 1340, in what most presumed would be a short-term temper tantrum. It was anything but. Instead, it marked the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. England was a much smaller and weaker nation than France, and most of its money came from the trade of wool and Gasconian wine, both of which France was restricting. So Edward's war looked doomed from the start. But he had a secret weapon, longbowmen. The longbow was a fearsome weapon. It had far greater range than the standard French crossbow and had the stopping power to penetrate even the best available armor. But it was difficult to use and required years of training, so for a while, warfare had mostly been conducted with mounted armed soldiers charging into hapless crossbowmen. It was the age of chivalry, when noble knights clashed on the field of battle, and Edward was about to run the whole idea of chivalry across his boot. In England, the longbow was a national pastime. Every father taught every son how to shoot. When Edward landed in Flanders, he brought them with and proceeded to decimate French armies in a series of lopsided battles that sent the French reeling. Edward was only stopped when a freak hailstorm killed 1,000 English soldiers on Easter Monday, 1360. But, as the name might suggest, the Hundred Years' War was nowhere close to over. Violence sparked repeatedly over the next couple of decades, and while France eventually got its footing and clawed back a lot of its land, this came at a steep price. War was expensive, and the French peasantry, still suffering from plague and famine, were unwilling to pay higher taxes. Peasant revolts, once the sort of thing that only happened in isolated areas and for short spurts, became an absolute fad, spreading across France in 1382 and threatening the medieval order in ways no one would have thought possible a century earlier. Fun times, right? To close out this century, pocked with war, famine, disease, civil unrest, and the tattering of religious authority, in 1393, Isabeau of Bavaria, Queen of France, did what any queen would. She threw a party. A party so disastrous that it came to be seen as emblematic of everything awful about the worst century in European history. And so disastrous that it changed that history forever. 
This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Burning Men. In addition to all the war and famine and pestilence and unrest, the 14th century had another problem, which carries down to us now when we try to look at it. Most of the records of the era were written by just a handful of people, most of them monks. Usually they weren't present for the events they described, and worse still, they tended to have some serious axes to grind. Altogether, this means that there are a lot of things about Isabeau's party that we're not very sure about, and some other stuff that is, uh, suspect. I shouldn't call it Isabeau's party, actually. Because while the queen officially threw the ball, the most critical element of it wasn't planned by her. And she wasn't the guest of honor. That would be Catherine de Fasteverin, Isabeau's lady-in-waiting. And the occasion of the party was Catherine's wedding, which was held on January 28, 1393. Aside from her position and her wedding day, there's very little known about Catherine de Fasterven. But we do know that January 28, 1393 was not her first wedding day. She'd been married at least twice before. Michel Pintoin, the monk of St. Denis, one of the primary sources of this story, says that this was her fourth marriage. And that is critically important to understanding what happened that night. The position of the Catholic Church was that marriage was a nearly unbreakable bond. But one surefire way to get out of it was to die. Till death do us part isn't just a poetic fancy, it's the actual binding term of the contract. As far as the church was concerned, Catherine de Fastervin could marry as many times as she pleased, so long as her previous husbands were all pushing daisies, which they were. That was the law, and everybody had to go along with it. But they didn't have to like it. A lot of the laity throughout Europe felt that while it was technically true that widows and widowers were free to remarry after a period of mourning, they really shouldn't, and should be made to feel embarrassed about it. This was one of a host of such behaviors, which, while technically not sinful or illegal, were nevertheless considered shameful. And medieval Europe had a way of expressing its disapproval of such things. Sharivari. How and when Sharivari got started is unknown, and even the etymology of the word itself is pretty hazy. It's also not the only word for the practice, which is and was also known as chivalry, skimmington, rough music, Staying riding, tin panning, ran tanning, nominee, woozit, lubelling, husseting, cats and music, scampinate, harbor feldtreiben, and at least a dozen other things. There were differences between how each of these terms worked, and even differences in the meaning of each individual term from time to time and place to place. But generally, the Sharivari was a way for people to voice their disapproval of some member or members of their community. For instance, in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, instruction is given to farmers that they shouldn't harvest the edges of their fields and shouldn't go back to harvest or pick up any crop that they missed or dropped on their first go around. 
Whatever was left over in the field was for the poor to come rummage through, a practice known as gleaning. In much of Europe, France and England particularly, gleaning was seen as a legal right of the poor, and if a farmer didn't allow people to browse through their fields at the end of the season, they might face legal action. But if instead they technically allowed gleaning, but did what they could to scrape up every last bit, they might find themselves the subject of a charivari. In the middle of the night, the irritated townsfolk would gather, sometimes in masks. They'd form a sort of nocturnal parade and march to the offending person's house, banging pans, blowing horns, screaming lewd poetry, and generally causing an upset for hours on end. The Sharivari wasn't just meant to annoy and keep people up all night, it was primarily a public form of shaming, and it was seen as so intense that sometimes the Charivarid would leave the community or even commit suicide. Other times the target would fight back. Violet Alford found five instances in which French Charivaris were broken up when the victim fired upon the crowd. While being stingy with your crops was one way to get yourself a late night wake up call, there were many others. Block a road? Charivari. Undercut the price of goods? Charivari. Gouge the price of goods? Charivari. Charivaris were used against greedy bosses and union scabs. They were also used, unsurprisingly, against ethnic and religious minorities who had the temerity to move in where they weren't wanted. But far and away the most common cause of Charivari was breaking social mores, particularly around sex and gender roles. In most of Christendom, it wasn't illegal for a husband to beat his wife. But that doesn't mean everybody was cool with bottomless spousal abuse. A man with a reputation for cruelty towards his family might find himself awoken by pots and horns in the night. On the flip side, if a man was seen as too browbeaten or permissive of his wife, he might get the same welcome. Most popularly of all, Sharivaris were used to tell newly wedded couples that while God might shine upon their union, their neighbors did not. Usually this sort of disapproval originated with remarriages. Young men might get together to harass an older widower who had taken a young bride because he was, in their view, hoving in on their territory. Or if someone got married too soon after their spouse died. Or if they just got remarried at all, as in the case of Catherine de Fastiverin. It's very likely, though not guaranteed, that the party thrown for Catherine on her wedding night, January 28, 1393, was meant as a sort of courtly charivari. And if you're thinking, well, that's a pretty mean prank for the queen to pull on her lady-in-waiting, you might be right, but not necessarily. Yeah, charivaris were often tools of shame, really hostile affairs, but it's possible that wedding night charivaris were sometimes more playful than that. After all, the modern tradition of dangling noisy cans from the back of a newly married couple's car quite possibly originates from this tradition, and nobody does that out of cruelty, right? It could be that Catherine's party was meant as a gentle ribbing, a show of affection, like a 14th century Shriner's roast. It could also be that it was seen as a way to break a curse. In the book of Tobit, the demon Osmodeus falls in love with a woman named Sarah, and in a showering of infernal affection, proceeds to kill every man she marries on their wedding night. 
This happens seven times until she meets her eighth prospective husband, Tobit's son, Tobias. By this time, the community has shunned Sarah, and Tobias is warned about his fate should he pursue the courtship. But Tobias has a secret up his sleeve, the angel Raphael. Raphael instructs the couple to burn the heart and liver of a fish to exercise Osmodeus, which works, and ta-da, Tobias and Sarah are happily married. In the pagan traditions, the medieval church was constantly trying to stifle or assimilate, there were tons of beliefs and rituals around fertility and prosperity, and we will get back to some of those in a bit. Suffice it to say, for now, it could have been that Queen Isabeau threw Catherine's wedding party not to mock or shame her, but to rescue her from yet another widowhood. Could be. Who knows? Honestly, it's not ultimately that important. Because while Isabeau might have ostensibly thrown the masked ball for her lady-in-waiting, in reality, the guest of honor was her husband, Charles VI. And the objective was more important than any matrimonial shaming or blessing. To keep the king from going insane. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Ah, King Charles VI known as Charles the Beloved, for a little while. After a promising start, Charles went on to oversee one of the most disastrous reigns in French history, which is saying something given 
you know, French history. It wasn't exactly his fault, though, and some portion of the blame can be laid at the feet of the 1393 party we are here to eventually attend. By an incredible coincidence, King Charles VI was the son of, get this, King Charles V, huh, who, in contrast to his successor, did a pretty darn good job monarching. He reignited the Hundred Years' War, which appeared to have ended with that hailstorm, retaking huge swaths of land and proving that France was still the most powerful force in Europe. He put down rebellions, stabilized the nation's finances, and stopped hordes of brigands from ravaging the countryside. He even managed to reassemble the French navy and take the fight to the shores of England. Charles was good at everything a king is supposed to do, except for maybe the most important thing. Siring heirs. Charles and Queen Joanna tried unsuccessfully for seven years to make a baby, before finally Princess Joanna was born, with Princess Bonn following fast behind. But three-year-old Joanna and two-year-old Bonn died within months of each other. A third daughter, also named Joanna, died at just six months. Marie made it to seven, Isabella to six, and John not even out of infanthood. Of all their children, only two survived to adulthood, Charles and his younger brother, Louis, the Duke of Orleans. In 1378, Queen Joanna gave birth to baby Catherine, who would live to the age of 10, but the queen died two days later. Two years after that, her husband died, probably the result of a long-lasting infection, and Charles VI became king in 1380. The new king, however, was only 11 years old, so four of his uncles were named as regents until he came of age. Their rule was an absolute shambles. The four uncles raised taxes and pilfered much of the money to serve their own selfish goals. Louis, the first Duke of Anjou, raided the royal coffers to finance an invasion of Naples, where he hoped to be made king, but the invasion failed and Louis died suddenly in 1384. Louis II, Duke of Bourbon, did much the same, using the French treasury to embark upon a crusade against the Hafsid pirates along the Barbary coast. The crusade faltered at Medea, and although Louis survived, he showed little interest in helping rule France. That left Duke John of Berry and the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Bold. The tax-and-spend attitude of the uncles, coupled with the aforementioned famines and aforementioned plague, led to aforementioned large-scale peasant revolts in Duke John's territory, distracting him while Philip displayed his eponymous boldness. He was, essentially, the sole ruler of France, at least until Charles came of age, and Philip used that time to secure as much power as he could so that when Charles did become king, he'd have something to show for his trouble. He turned the royal army into his own personal military, seizing lands that he could hold even after his regency ended, which it did, finally, in 1388. Charles VI truly ascended to the throne, dismissed his uncles, and reinstated the advisors his father had cultivated, together with his newly reformed court, known as the Marmosets. Aww. He lowered taxes, eased national tensions, and negotiated relative peace with the English. For all of this, he earned that short-lived title, Charles the Beloved.
But in the background, there were hints of the nickname that would come to define his rule. Charles the Mad. The first cracks in Charles's royal facade occurred during peace negotiations with England. During the meeting, he fell ill. He had a high fever, his fingernails became brittle and fell out, and he seems to have been seized by some sort of mania. No matter, after a few months of bed rest, he appeared to have recuperated, and everything was hunky-dory. Until July of 1392. One of Charles's closest friends and advisors, Olivier the Butcher, oh, he sounds nice, was on his way to Paris when an assassin jumped out and drew his sword on him. In the melee that followed, the assassin, Pierre de Crayon, managed to stab Olivier. Or he thought he had, at least. Unbeknownst to Crayon, the blade had been stopped by Olivier's chainmail, but it had thrown him from his horse, and on the way down, he'd conked his head on a door and fell unconscious. Crayon, thinking he was dead, ran away, leaving Paris and taking refuge in Brittany. Charles demanded that the Duke of Brittany, John V, turn over Crayon for punishment, but John refused, probably because he had been the one who told Crayon to butcher the butcher in the first place. So Charles mounted an army and marched off to show Brittany what was what. So far, it all sounds like regular medieval bullshit, but the men with Charles on the expedition didn't think so. To them, it seemed like something was wrong with Charles. He was furious, paranoid, and when he spoke, his words didn't quite make sense. More than a month into the journey, on a particularly scalding hot August day, Charles and his retinue were passing by Le Mans when a leper suddenly ran out of the woods, bolted straight for Charles, and screamed, Ride no further, noble king! Turn back! You are betrayed! This seems to have toppled the already wobbling Jenga tower of the king's sanity. A couple hours later, a page who was carrying Charles's lance on horseback dozed off and the lance dropped onto the armored head of another page in front of him, making a loud clang. In an instant, Charles drew his sword, screamed, Forward against the traitors! and began swinging wildly at his own knights. He murdered four men, including a knight, before one of his chamberlains managed to pull him from his horse and pin him to the ground. At that point, Charles fell into a coma. Peculiar, right? What exactly was wrong with Charles? His uncle, Philip, wasn't particularly interested in the answer. He was Philip the Bold, after all, not Philip the Wanderer. He was on the scene at the moment of Charles's bizarre violent episode, or, as we should call it, his attack attack. Being bold, Philip saw Charles's attack attack as his moment to strike. He named himself regent again right there on the spot, dismissed the marmosets, and became the ruler of France once more. Not everybody was happy with this situation, particularly Charles's brother, Louis of Orleans, and his wife, Isabeau, each of whom believed, predictably, that they should be in charge. 
Together, the three formed a regency council, with Philip mostly at the helm, since Isabeau and Louis had other things to worry about. For one, they may have started fucking, but let's leave that for later. More pressingly, when Charles regained consciousness, he wasn't entirely himself. He claimed not to recognize Isabeau or Louis, said that he in fact had no wife or brother, and that he was not king. Charles was diagnosed with melancholia, an excess of cholera or black bile that he had inherited from the overwetness of his mother. The treatment, at least at this point, was mild, even pleasant. Charles should relax, rest, eat well, and drink his fill. And Queen Isabeau should do her best to keep him happy and occupied with parties. Be careful not to worry or irritate him, said the king's 92-year-old doctor, Guillaume de Harsigny. Burden him with work as little as you can. Pleasure and forgetfulness will be better for him than anything else. It was under this dictum that the French royal court first became associated with excess and luxury, a reputation that would follow it down right through the French Revolution. And even in those early days, the rest of France despised the decadence they saw parading through the palace, while the people were dying all around the country from plague, from starvation, from war, from brigands. They didn't blame Charles, though. No, he was, after all, beloved and most knew nothing about his state of mind. They blamed Isabeau, a haughty foreign-born queen, and Louis, the bratty, callow, pampered duke. And I don't want to give you the impression that Isabeau and Louis were gritting their teeth and bearing it for the good of Charles. They were both top-notch hedonists, who might have been fucking, I think I mentioned. But they did have a secret justification, that all of their wanton, orgiastic gluttony was medicinal, actually. Which brings us, at long last, to January 28, 1393, and the wedding party of Catherine de Fastiverin, the twice, if not thrice, widowed lady-in-waiting of Queen Isabeau. That day, Catherine had been wedded to her new husband, about whom we know only that he was a knight, with the festivities planned for that night at the Hotel St. Paul, a royal estate built by Charles's father outside of Paris to escape the smell of the city. What all went into the party is unknown. Surely there was music and dancing and food and drink. Given Isabeau's reputation for opulence, it was probably a lot of all that, and given her reputation for bawdiness, there were probably games and various untoward activities, too. If, in fact, the party was meant to either purify or shame Catherine's nuptials, we can assume that there were other weirder events planned, banging pots, reciting lewd verses, and other vaguely pagan rituals performed with some indeterminable amount of seriousness. We really just don't know. But we do know about the main event, the real showstopper, because it is the thing that pressed the festivities into the pages of history. The idea, according to the monk of St. Denis, had been the brainchild of Huguet de Gusset, a close friend to Charles, and, by the monk's account, a real piece of work. Gusset's favorite pastime was, purportedly, to beat random poor people on the street. Quoting the monk, 
He was in the habit of treating the poor commoners and his own servants in the most brutal manner, beating them like dogs, throwing them down and kicking them with his spurs and forcing them to bark. Charming. Definitely the sort of bloke you should let design a night's entertainment, right? So, let's see what he came up with. Gisset took inspiration from the pagan idea of wild men, or ogres, or what the English at this time called woodwoes. There's a simple explanation for what wild men were and where they came from. Unfortunately, there are also like nine other simple explanations, and then an endless stream of permutations marrying two or more of those simple explanations together in various proportions, and honestly, I wouldn't trust anyone who says they get it. Probably the base of the idea came from the Roman myths of fauns, which were themselves borrowed from Greek myths of satyrs, with a bit of dryad or forest spirit commingled in there. Early reports of great apes, particularly those of Pliny, might have been involved, as well as some other pre-Roman European religious ideas. Throw in a dash of King Nebuchadnezzar, who, according to the Book of Daniel, was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird, and you're starting to get the recipe for medieval wild men. Somewhere between animals, spirits, demons, and men. The Hariums might have been good, bringing fertility, or bad, bringing the devil. Or possibly both. Arnie Runenberg, the 20th century Finnish anthropologist best known for his studies of European folk magic, thought that wild men rituals were about capturing or enticing the creatures long enough to get their fertility blessing and then destroying or exercising them before they could undo that blessing and curse everybody. This was typically accomplished sympathetically, by dressing someone up as a wild man, feeding him, doing some sorts of lascivious dance, and then symbolically burning him through some sort of effigy. So, did Guisset, the guy best known around Paris for kicking people until they barked like dogs, want to bless Catherine's marriage with an ancient pagan rite? I doubt it. More likely, he and the rest of the attendants saw an opportunity to have some perverted fun. What Gisset planned was for six of the men at the party, including himself and King Charles, to don wild men costumes. The outfits covered them from head to toe, except perhaps for their penises, that's a little unclear, and they had to be sewn into them in another room to protect their anonymity. Once they were wilded up, they would come into the ballroom and do a big licentious dance together. Originally, Gisset thought they should all be chained together, but somebody had the good sense to nix that element. Then they would wander around the party, scaring slash seducing young women and daring them to guess who was whom. It was basically a bachelorette party, but thrown 24 hours too late and in mixed company. Sure, by church law, it was heresy to perform a wild man ritual, whether you were serious about it or not. Both the popes agreed on that. 
And it was the exact kind of ruleless, excessive debauchery that the people of France resented Charles' court for. But whatever, it was all in good fun. Oh, uh, actually, there was one rule. The whole thing had to be done in the dark. Not for effect, but because the hairy, creepy costumes that the king and his entourage were sewn into had been soaked in highly flammable pitch to get the right color and for the flaxen fur to adhere. When the six men were all finally decked out in their pitch suits and masks, the torches in the ballroom were extinguished and the ball of the wild men began. So far as we know, it started off well. And then Louis, Duke of Orléans and younger brother to the king, broke the one rule. There are a couple of different descriptions written for how this came about, so let's start with the most innocent one, that Louis was both drunk and running late, and entered the hall with a torch not having heard the instruction against them. And not having heard about how the men were covered in flammable resin, he drunkenly raised that torch to try to get a better look at one of the wild men's faces. And next thing you know, the shaded ballroom was noonday bright with screaming flames. The first costumed noble went up like kindling, and from there the burning terror spread from man to man. One of the six, a young knight, had the presence of mind to toss himself into a huge pot of dishwashing water. Luckily for Charles, he was a ways distant from the other dancers when the conflagration began, and busy flirting with his 15-year-old cousin, the Duchess of Berry, Joan. Even luckier, Joan's dress had an enormous train, which she threw over the king to protect him from the chaos. The other four wild men, however, were doomed. The vain attempts by other revelers to extinguish the flames led only to the helpers suffering from burns themselves. One of the dancers, the Count of Joni, died right there on the spot. Two others, Amory of Potiers and Yvonne de Faux, held out for two days of agony so intense they could not speak. Gisset was anything but silent, though. He spent three days screaming and cursing at everyone, blaming Louis, blaming the king, blaming his fellow dancers and those who had failed to save him, blaming everyone except himself until his dying breath. During his funeral procession, crowds of people lined the streets to yell, Bark, dog, bark, at his corpse. Word soon got out of the Ball of the Wild Men, which quickly became known as the Ball of the Burning Men. The event was an unspeakable tragedy, but it was also an aha for many of the Crown's critics. Those who thought Charles's court too excessive and incautious? Well, <laughs> here you go. Those in the clergy, who thought there was no such thing as playful paganism, that idolatry, even in the spirit of frivolity, still praised the devil? Eh, they were feeling pretty smug, too. One of those people, by the way, was the monk of St. Denis, whose account of the incident is more than colored by his sense of divine retribution. Like when he describes, improbably, that before the flames were extinguished, the men's, quote, flaming genitals dropped to the floor, releasing a stream of blood. 
Finally, those who didn't trust Queen Isabeau or the king's brother, Duke Louis, well, they felt a very special kind of vindication. They were more unpopular than ever, even after they, Aunt Charles and the other survivors, did a literal walk of shame through the streets of Paris to Notre Dame, where they prayed forgiveness from God. Louis, as the person most directly at fault, donated money to build a monastery as penance. But while this was enough, if barely, depending on the account, to keep Parisians from rising up to murder everyone, it was still all the excuse Charles's uncle Philip needed to become the dominating voice of the Regency Council, and thus the de facto ruler of France. See, incredibly, witnessing a bunch of men burning alive, and almost being one of them, did little to calm King Charles's nerves. His insanity progressed with a startling rapidity. He would run naked through the palace, howling like a wolf. He would tear down his banners and deface the royal crest. At one point, he said he was St. George the Dragon Slayer. At another, he was convinced he was made of glass. This, by the way, would go on to become a common enough delusion throughout Europe that Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, one of my absolute favorite books, which I talked about in a bonus episode a couple months ago, devotes a sizable portion of its extravagant length to describing cases of what was called the glass delusion. Burton describes people who believed they had glass bones, glass heads, glass arms, and even glass hearts. One Venetian man thought his buttocks were made of glass and lived his life both afraid to sit down as well as to venture outside, where he feared the famed glass workers of Venice would melt his ass down into a window pane. If you're tempted to offer an armchair diagnosis for Charles, you will have to get in line. It seems like everyone who's ever come across the Mad King story has come up with a theory, and none of them work as well as you might like. Arsenic poisoning, accidental or otherwise, typhus and porphyria are all long-shot possibilities. Paranoid schizophrenia is an obvious choice. Same goes with manic depression, and these days most put their money on one or the other. But a purely psychiatric diagnosis falls apart when you remember that after his first major bout, he fell into a coma and that before that, his first minor attack was accompanied by his fingernails falling apart. Marrying all the symptoms together, he could have had sarcoidosis, a rare autoimmune disorder you're likely to remember from House. Except that the records suggest that Charles didn't suffer alone, that a couple other nobles and servants fell ill around the same time that he started losing his nails. So... Maybe Charles's condition was communicable, in which case it would almost have to be syphilis. But there is no record of syphilis until 1495, when Charles's grandson, King Charles VIII, lay siege to Naples. So, who knows? Maybe Charles's sickness was idiopathic, or maybe it was some rare disease that has since gone extinct. Maybe he had some combination of ailments, typhus and manic depression, say. Or maybe one or more of the facts is wrong. If the reports of other people falling sick along with Charles are incorrect, for instance, then sarcoidosis looks better. And if the coma and fingernail loss were coincidental, the result, perhaps of heat stroke and a minor infection respectively, then the psychological explanations get better. 
But there is no good way to determine any of this. So all we really know is that Charles believed he was made of glass. He acted upon his glass delusion by having his clothing reinforced with iron bars to protect him from breaking and ordered that no one come near him for fear they might shatter him. That included the queen, who Charles lashed out at so fiercely that she eventually agreed to give him a proxy, a lover who became known as the Little Queen. That was fine with Isabeau because she probably took a lover of her own. Charles's brother, and the man who lit the torch that started the ballroom burning. I lit the torch that started the ballroom burning. Louis, Duke of Orleans. Together, they managed to claw back a bit of power from Philip the Bold. Although Charles detested Isabeau in his madness, when his melancholy abated, he was more sanguine and ensured that she was regent of their son, the Dauphin Prince. By the time Philip died in 1404, Louis had consolidated the power of the regency for Orléans. Not a lot of people liked this, but especially not Philip's son, John the Fearless. John invaded Paris a year after his father's death, looking to hunt down Louis and gain power for himself. Louis and Queen Isabeau fled, and John took the prince hostage. Luckily, King Charles had one of his rare spats of lucidity and stepped in to end the conflict. He only partially succeeded, though, and two years later, John the Fearless assassinated Duke Louis in the dead of night. Then he fled Paris, back to Burgundy, where he raised an army and marched it on Paris again. But this time he wasn't attacking. He was there to see the council and defend his actions. He hired a theologian and professor named Jean Petit to present an argument that John shouldn't be punished for murdering the king's brother. In fact, he should be rewarded. Louis, Petit said, was a tyrant, and the Bible said killing tyrants was good. What made him a tyrant? Well, he taxed people too much. He was cruel and self-interested, decadent and sinful. In his youth, he had tampered reportedly with witchcraft. And one time, he had even attempted the highest crime of them all, regicide. See, according to Petit, Louis hadn't started the wild men burning because he was late, drunk, and unawares. According to Petit, he had burnt them on purpose in an attempt on his brother's life. King Charles, who was dipping into madness at the time, such that he demanded his own men take his weapons from him, was convinced and issued a pardon to John the Fearless, which he then rescinded when he got his wits about him, and when John's army was no longer standing around. Isabeau and King Charles tried to make peace between John and Louis's son, Duke Charles of Orléans, and for a hot minute it seemed to work. But on Duke Charles's wedding night, he urged his father-in-law, the Count of Armagnac, to join up and get revenge against Burgundy. The conflict that had started between Philip and Louis after the Ball of the Burning Men descended into full-out civil war between Armagnac and Burgundy. And with the most powerful houses of France at war with one another, and the king drivelingly insane, along came Henry V of England. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, 
be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that thought with us upon St. Crespin's Day! After Kenneth Branagh gave his speech, which I don't know how anyone could hear him over that underscoring, he destroyed what was left of the French army at Agincourt, with John the Fearless and Burgundy, his allies. Defeated, King Charles had to give up his issue. When he died, he agreed, the crown would not pass to his son, but to Henry. France would be English for all time. Fortunately, if you like France, Henry V died weeks before Charles VI, and the French called takesy-backsies on their country. Charles VII was crowned, and the English once again reignited the Hundred Years' War. They laid siege to Olean, Louis' old city, in 1428. But the English failed, because a new French hero appeared at Olean who rallied the French spirit and eventually encouraged them to unify the nation and drive out the English once and for all, Joan of Arc. All that jockeying and bloodshed and literal backstabbing, the fate of two nations turned over and over again on the edge of a knife because of one little party. So remember that the next time you're looking for an excuse to stay in for the night. Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. The Constant is made possible by listeners like you, who get ad-free early access to new episodes as well as bonus episodes. People like Jimbo, Alex Reed, Anton Bystrom, Aaron Swanson, and Lori Peterson. Hey, that's my mother-in-law! Thanks, Lori, and all of you for making this show possible. If you would like to join them and forego the ads, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash the constant and signing up. Otherwise, do me a favor and tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the main and pretty much only way this show grows. So even if you don't want to fork over some cash, you can make my day a little brighter by filling out the ranks of Constantines until one day we rise up and take over the world. And until that terrifying dusk arrives, from Chicago, Illinois, where an ill-conceived and ill-fated celebration called the Great Chicago Fire Festival managed, uh, pretty predictably, to burn a bunch of sailboats in Chicago Harbor, this has been The Constant. At least nobody died, I guess. Scamp and tot. Scamp and tot? That's not quite right.
Scampin' Tot. <laughs>